0: welcome to the Media Law Podcast newscast. Collect Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest media law headlines. We have a lot of defamation cases today from both US, Australia and also AI generated potential cases. I want to start with the Dominion settlements, uh, which happened on the 18th of April 2023. Fox agreed to pay Dominion Voting Systems a historic 787.5 million US dollars to settle a landmark defamation suit bought by the election technology company over claims repeatedly aired on Fox News, suggesting its voting machines involved in a conspiracy to rig the 2020 US presidential election. The settlement is thought to be the largest libel settlement in US history. The only case that has been more costly is phone hacking which has cost news court more than 1 billion in total over the past decade the payout was accompanied by a statement from fox which read we acknowledge the court's ruling finding certain claims about dominion to be false and the settlement reflects, is, reflects fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards there's been a lot of commentary on this in various outlets uh who who wants to to kind of start with what this settlement means for um, Sullivan Standard and and bringing claims against journalists and publications in the US going forward. The,
1: the procedure, in a way we've been robbed. We've been robbed of an opportunity to revisit the um, New York Times and Sullivan Standard to think about its sort of general ap- uh, applicability and its fitness for purpose. Um, there have been murmurings that the, the present composition of the uh, Supreme Court, for example, uh, if that case had ever got that far, might have taken the opportunity to, to revisit it. Um, as we know, the American standard for defamation uh, in, a, in a setting like this is, is higher uh, than for uh, the UK's uh, approach, uh, Dominion would have had to have demonstrated that sort of uh, malice aforethought standard of um, uh, knowing falsehood or or reckless disregard uh, for the truth, um, but we're told from their submissions uh, that they had uh, a, a treasure, a veritable treasure trove of information of evidence that all pointed towards a knowing dissemination of falsehood that there were senior executives that there were presenters one of which was Tucker Carlson that knew this wasn't right but their motivation for broadcasting it was their fear that their market share Fox News's market share was steadily being lost to rival organizations particularly those favored by Donald Trump who were prepared to indulge in these kind of conspiracy fantasies. this idea that somehow the election had been stolen from Trump and that somehow the voting machines were uh, siphoning off votes for from Trump and, and, and giving them to Biden. Um, so what we what we see here is the unvarnished, unadulterated truth, that when push comes to shove, these news organizations follow the money. They are first and foremost corporations designed to make money and to satisfy their interests of their shareholders. There was no uh, concern here about being a public watchdog. There was no concern here about keeping a check on power. This was all about the money. And uh, that's why the only satisfaction I think we can get from this is that it is a stain on Murdoch's reputation uh, and his empire as well.
2: I agree with Paul that uh, we've been robbed. We've been robbed of what would have been a very entertaining trial, I've no doubt. Um, Fox has settled this for this astronomical sum of money um, in order to limit the amount of damage done to it. And that's quite extraordinary when you think of the scale of damage they they must be thinking about. Um, They're prepared to pay nearly $800 million to prevent whatever evidence Dominion has on them from coming out. And presumably, Dominion has achieved has managed to acquire simply through the lawful process of discovery. Fox has been required to hand over um, a lot of very damning, very embarrassing evidence about what was going on uh, at the heart of that organisation when these claims were being made. So that's what they've they've, they've paid to uh, to keep quiet. Uh, and, and, and I agree with everything that that Paul has said about it. That is. Uh, that is the trouble with civil litigation: the, that uh, entertaining-looking trials oftentimes don't happen because most civil cases settle. Um, I do think the the amount for which this claim has settled is extraordinary, um, but it doesn't sound disproportionate. We were when commentators were talking about this. Case early stages, you know, most commentators in the know, most experts in this field were saying this was going to be a big one, this was going to be an expensive one. And Dominion were claiming a very large amount of money in damages. Um, so I'm not surprised that the costs end up being in the hundreds of millions. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a little, uh, just a little disappointed we didn't get to see some of the stuff unfold in court, which would have been more fun.
0: We also appear to have been robbed of uh, an interesting case brought by Lachlan Murdoch against the Australian publisher news site Crikey, which he dropped uh, in the days after Fox News agreed to pay Dominion, the landmark settlement. Uh, Murdoch, well, Lachlan Murdoch uh, had sued Crikey for defamation in August 2022 over a column titled, Trump is a confirmed unhinged traitor and Murdoch is his unindicted co-conspirator. This would have been one of the first cases to test the new statutory defence in Australia of publication on a matter of public interest. This defence became law in 2021, and it means a defamatory publication is defensible if two conditions are met. The first is that the publication must concern an issue of public interest, which the Crikey article arguably easily passed. And the second was that the publishers must have had a reason must have reasonably believed that the publication of the matter was in the public interest. It it looked like Murdoch's case was gonna go down the line of the second uh, part of that test um, and kind of argue that Crikey was doing this to drive its subscriptions. But it's been dropped, uh, I guess, for the same reasons that we have uh, meant you've already mentioned in in terms of limiting the amount of damage that could fall out of of, Murdoch's involvement in these kinds of uh, lies that were spread around the 2020 election.
2: Yes, I think the uh, whole Murdoch Empire has uh, uh, decided to uh, lie low for a while. Uh, and probably so
1: What's also just worth mentioning in passing, would we classify this as a slap? Would we ca- classify this as a strategic lawsuit against public participation? Here we have a large media organisation who has been cu- accused of lying disseminating major, major lies about uh, a conspiracy uh, that that never took place, that has defamed a voting machines company uh, for uh, no other reason than the gain of of profit. And uh, here we have um, a, a very senior figure of that empire suing uh, a small um, newspaper organisation who was trying to publish the truth, uh, whatever the truth might be.
2: I would call this a slap, um, but I'd, I would be very surprised if anyone in, say, our government would call this particular case a slap given who it was brought by. Um, but th- th- that just goes really to show how the term slap... It has been manipulated in its usage so that, frankly, precisely the sorts of cases that ought to be regarded as slaps like this, like the one, in my view, that Dominic Raab himself brought about a dozen years ago to um, put the lid on allegations of, would you believe it, bullying in his department. Um, those are the sorts of things I do think of as slaps, but I'm absolutely certain that uh, Dominic Rab and or whomever his replacement is um, probably wouldn't think of them as slaps, uh, slaps are things only done to uh, the righteous.
1: Well, only done to the right kind kinds of them. journalists uh, by the uh, wrong kinds of person. Uh, I exactly.
0: Moving on from cases that almost came then to cases that could still be to come, I want to mention Michael Schumacher's family who are planning to bring legal action against a German weekly magazine over a fake interview with the seven-time Formula One champion that was generated by artificial intelligence. The latest edition of Die Oktel. Ran a front cover with a picture of a smiling Schumacher and the headline promising Michael Schumacher the first interview. The strapline added, It sounded deceptively real. And inside, it emerged that the supposed quotes had been produced by AI. Uh, I'm going to talk later as well about um, a uh, return generated by J- ChatGPT, uh, the uh, falsely accused law professor of sexual assault. Um, but I, the same question applies to both of those, these news items, which is in these instances, who's the, who's the kind of source of the libel and, and has it really, yeah, I mean, in this instance, it has been published because obviously it came from a newspaper, but do you blame the newspaper for that publication? Do you blame the, 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 uh, chatbot outlet who's responsible in AI generated content?
2: So I think from an English legal perspective, which is the only perspective I I, I can offer in law um, on this, the defendant in a libel case has to be the publisher. So if an organization, take this this newspaper outlet, um, the Actuela, um, if they have in effect commissioned the AI to create this interview... That's one thing, and anybody could do that in the privacy of their own room and uh, and not publish it. But then to take the decision to publish it, disseminate the product, renders the newspaper, uh, the publisher, as they would if a journalist had produced it. Um, where I think we could end up with more problematic cases, uh, cases where the ai response is disseminated directly from the ai interface so if for example as we are starting to see um plans from search engines to use ai in this sort of fashion um, if when you put a particular search term into a search engine that search engine creates and disseminates libelous responses um and if it does so repeatedly and widely so that you know anyone who puts in the search term is likely to get a very similar and thus similarly libelous response then you've got the 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 bigger problem because you then run up against cases such as um metropolitan international schools um which as it stands, absolve a search engine of liability um, where a search term, once put into the search algorithm, returns hits of websites and clips from those websites that contain libelous material. Um, There'll be a big argument around the extent to which that sort of precedent should or should not extend to AI-generated responses to search terms but with the schumacher interview i think this is quite straightforward um in in terms it, it, it's i mean it's a fairly it it must, it must be a horrific thing for the uh, the family to be enduring um but it seems to me a relatively straightforward privacy violation um i'm frankly surprised that a german newspaper would do this given the, the dignity clause in the german constitution which in principle, uh, it, it creates a more direct route to legal redress for this sort of privacy violation than you would find in in, in England. Um, but then, some of the biggest European privacy cases we've had have uh, emanated from Germany. So um, there we are. I, I Paul, any I thoughts think it's
1: on this? it's it's an interesting one in terms of the the, the gruesomeness of it. I I, I think. At the moment, with deep fakes, uh, generally of which we might count this as sort of example of deep fakes, it's a sort of shock, I think, that someone would want to do this and then print a kind of misleading uh, headline about it. This this isn't the sort of National Enquirer uh, Nazis have a base on the moon or Elvis lives in uh, Alaska. It, 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 this is something that's actually deeply insensitive to um, relatives, people that know Michael Schumacher, uh, in in exactly the same way that deepfake pornography is deeply unpleasant and harmful. And so, um, but what's interesting, I think, is the, is the way that we as um, lawyers would approach this from a defamation perspective, the reputational damage, Whether our judges would just sort of say, well, it was clear from the text that this was a fake um, story, that uh, it was clear that it wasn't actually a real story about uh, them, uh, about Schumacher. Um, I I think my limited understanding of German uh, law is that they're more attuned to reputational concerns than we are uh, in this regard.
0: Moving on then to the, the other AI potential defamation issue that I want to talk about today, which is the return that ChatGPT gave, where in which it falsely accused an American law professor of sexual harassment when asked to generate a list of legal scholars who had committed sexual harassment. Professor Jonathan Turley from George Washington University told the BBC Radio for Today programme that he was falsely accused by the AI chatbot of assaulting students on a trip that he never took while working at a school that he never taught at, citing a 2018 article in the Washington Post that never existed. There has been another similar instance of this in Australia, where ChatGPT falsely claimed a mayor had been imprisoned for bribery. I guess this is a slightly more obvious defamation case than the Schumacher, um, Schumacher example, because it would kind of pass that threshold for serious harm in terms of the accusations that are being made. But in, in instances uh, like like Jonathan, Professor Jonathan Turley's, he's the one who seems to have published the results because when he searched the original question, it just returned to him and then he kind of made the decision to, to tell everyone about it. So that complicates who would be liable in a situation like this further.
2: Well, where I think the complication comes in, and, and for the reasons I gave earlier, I think once... You know, a person gets uh, an output from um, an AI, AI language bot like this. Um, if that, if the person who commissions it publishes it, then liability rests with them, in principle. Where it becomes interesting is if, in the context of, say, a public interest publication defense. So let's say i go out there as a lay person with no knowledge of defamation law i ask a question of uh, an ai in language interface um about a well-known person it comes back and tells me that well-known person has done a bunch of things that sound terrible um which in fact that person has not done but which it sounds very plausible and convincing. Uh, they like they have done, uh, according to the AI's output. If I then don't fact check it, if I just rely on what I've been told, as the manufacturers of these AIs are telling us, we can uh, rely on their uh, products. Um, will I be able to rely on a Section Four defence? and say, I reasonably believe that it was in the public interest to tell everybody that these things happened, this celebrity did this, that, or the other, because, um, you know, this is a well-known person, these are terrible things that they've done. Um, So I think that's where the battleground's going to be. To what extent ought lay people be required by law to distrust and thus fact-check AI-generated content before disseminating it further. Um, We would expect journalists to fact-check things, but the courts have repeatedly said now that we don't hold lay people to the same standards of fact-checking as journalists. So are we expecting the average lay person to understand in the face of all of the marketing to the contrary that these AI are in some ways remarkably stupid things that do not understand the content they are generating, that have no no intentionality behind it at all. They're just language predicting machines, as far as I understand it, and I don't understand the tech very well. they just predict the next most likely word in the sequence using a very complicated algorithm. Um, They don't understand there's absolutely no comprehension behind um, what is being generated.
0: We have some insight on that interplay between truth defences and section four public interest that came out from the courts just this week uh, with the Hay and Creswell judgment as it relates to uh, lay people, non-journalists. Tom, do you want to give us a bit more information as to what that judgment said and, and essentially link it back to what you've just been speaking about with regards to ChatGPT?
2: I'll try. Uh, the case was not to do with AI. This was a a straightforward, in effect, case of uh, a libel claim brought by one individual against another. So the background to this is that uh, the defendant in this case, Cresswell, a, a, a young woman, was... Um, was sexually assaulted uh, seriously in 2010 Um, in 2020 having been inspired by things like the the me too movement um, she put an account of uh, her experience uh, online on a blog um, and accused a particular man of being the perpetrator, a person that she had always believed to be the perpetrator. Um, this man brought a libel claim. Uh, it was litigated in the High Court, and we got the judgment on Wednesday uh, from Mrs. Justice Heather Williams. And it's uh, a judgment that finds both. The the truth defence and the Section 4 defence of reasonable belief, the publication of the statement is in the public interest, succeed. So the defendant shows to the court satisfaction on balance probabilities that she was seriously sexually assaulted and that the claimant in this case was the perpetrator. Um, that is... Part of the judgment is not legally particularly noteworthy. It's a straightforward truth defense. Um, but then the court considers also Section 4. And there's a note in the judgment um, that says the parties, both parties agreed that if the court found the truth defense was made out, notwithstanding Section 4 is then irrelevant to the outcome of the litigation, that the court should con- proceed to consider it nonetheless. Um, this isn't explained in the judgment. Um, I'm sure some practitioners out there can see immediately why this was done in a way that an academic such as myself can't quite. Um, I'm wondering whether it's to do with avenues of potential appeal, um, where if the findings on truth were appealed, it might be helpful to have had the court already consider Section 4 as, as a backup. Um, but in any event, What the court does, uh, I think, is really useful, and it's particularly going to be useful for students of this field of law, Um, because um, the judge goes through the elements of Section 4 in great detail applies each of those elements separately to the evidence, explains how it applies to the evidence, explains how she's reaching a conclusion, and then reaches it. It's classic, what we would call in law school, IRAC formula, which is the the method that we uh, use to teach law students in a very formal fashion um, how to deal with hypothetical scenarios. So if there are any law students listening who uh, have found in... uh, The case law on section 4 to be confusing or the methodology on section 4 to be confusing and I'm aware it's approaching summer exam season Uh, this case Hay and Cresswell could well help you out significantly Uh, it's worth reading the part of the judgment that deals with section 4 because it is methodologically so uh, explanatory Um, so I, I don't think a huge amount comes out of the judgment in terms of its jurisprudential significance except that it is another example uh, of the courts re-emphasizing that Section 4 does apply to non-journalists in a way that the Reynolds factors never did. And that uh, it, it does not set such high standard for lay people as it does for journalists. So it is relatively straightforward to meet the Section 4 um the Section 4 standard here and thus uh, to to make out the defense. Um, And the only way in which I could see that relating to a potential use of AI is just that we are now starting to see this body of case law, which is quite frequently emphasizing the lesser standard to which lay people are held under Section 4. Um, So, Mm. If the AI issue that we were talking about earlier is to be litigated, it has to be litigated against that background where generally speaking, the courts are sympathetic to lay people. Um, uh, and I think when particularly you're dealing with complex technology like uh, chat GPT and uh, other similar AIs, and we're about to see a range of them, I've no doubt, um, and they'll be quite ubiquitous, I should think in two or three years time. Uh, we won't think twice about using them, but will we really expect people to understand them uh, and what impact is that going to have uh, on, on on the litigation in this in this field? But yes, yeah, students out there, read Hay and Cresswell, if you have, you know, spare 20 minutes between now and your exams.
0: The last thing I want to mention today is that between the 25th and the 27th of April 2023, there was a hearing in the news group phone hacking litigation before the managing judge, Farncott J., NGN are applying to strike out the claims made by uh, the likes of Hugh Grant and Prince Harry on limitation grounds. I don't believe we have a judgment yet uh, on that, but it was heard this week. And so we will, of course, keep listeners updated as and when we have more information from the courts. That concludes everything that I wanted to talk about today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your excellent insight, as always.
2: Thank you very much, Colette.
1: Thanks for
0: that. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much.
1: Bye-bye.